I'm Kim Singletary. And I'm Rich Collins with Biz New Orleans Magazine. Welcome to Biz Talks. Each week, we reach beyond the pages of Biz New Orleans Magazine to bring you in-depth conversations with members of the business community. From the names everyone knows to the ones destined to make their mark, we'll dive into the top issues, best practices, successes, and failures of every industry that calls Southeast Louisiana home. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Warner Thomas, president and CEO of Oshner Health. Over the last two years, Oshner and other healthcare providers have navigated an extraordinary set of challenges related to the pandemic and extreme weather events. Today, Thomas will talk about the lessons learned in the process and how they will change the healthcare industry going forward. Warner Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Rich. Great to be with you. All right. So here we are. It's two years after the start of the pandemic. Can you give us a state of the union as it were, for the healthcare industry, especially here uh, where extreme weather events are also a factor. So first, let me talk about healthcare in general, and then I'll come back and talk about auctioners. So I would say that the state of the union around healthcare is that um, the healthcare delivery systems across the country have been extremely challenged. The pandemic has uh, has really stretched thin the, um, the healthcare workers, you know, physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, uh, all clinical positions, frankly. Um, you know, here in, in Southeast Louisiana, or in Louisiana in general, I mean, the, the um, hurricane of 2020, and then obviously Hurricane Ida, you know, just a few months ago in 2021, were uh, extremely challenging. Um, you know, just to kind of rewind the clock back to 2020, at auction, we prepared for seven hurricanes in 2020, while going through, um, you know, two surges of a pandemic and obviously Hurricane Ida in 2021. So that's been, you know, that's stretched the workforce, you know, um, to uh, to its extreme. I would say uh, as far as auction overall, you know, we have weathered the pandemic well. Uh, you know, we've cared for you know, nearly 40% of the COVID patients in the state of Louisiana. Um, you know, we did... Uh, um, about 660,000 vaccine shots uh, across the state in 2021. Uh, nearly 2 million tests since COVID has started. So we've really stepped up and done our part as a system across the state. You know, we've continued to see growth across our system, you know, really in all regions. We've served more patients in 2021 than in the history of Ochsner. And, and really, it's, it is across all regions. It's not just New Orleans. Uh, it's it's North Shore, it's Baton Rouge, Acadiana, North Louisiana, really across the system. So I, I believe that um, you know state of the system auction is strong. Uh, we've got the workforce challenges that lots of other industries have, and certainly that is probably the biggest challenge we face going into 2022 is workforce. You mentioned the challenges during the storms when you add the storm to the pandemic, and I have a neighbor who's a I think the term is a hospitalist. He's a, a doc over there at the main campus. And he was, yeah. t during Ida, you know, he, he's re required to stay there and be, uh, you know, on the premises. And normally he said he would stay at Brent House maybe. But yes. in this case, that was full because of other circumstances. So I know he was sleeping on an air mattress in his, uh, in his office. Yeah. So I was here during Hurricane Ida and I slept on an air mattress in my office. And, um, you know, for I was probably in, here on site in my office for about nine days post Ida. Um, yeah, that, that was a challenge. And, and certainly it was more of a challenge in the bayou where we had 
uh, Chavez Medical Center and, and, and certainly on the river parishes. But, you know, we saw, you know, uh, significant damage at all of our facilities in New Orleans, as well as our Bayou facilities and river parishes facilities. So, yeah, that coupled with coming off the Delta, remember the Delta surge, you know, began in July and we were just coming out of the surge at the end of August when Hurricane Ida hit. So we went from a, a pandemic surge into Hurricane Ida, and so that was extremely challenging. I mean, our team stepped up, they did a great job. Um, you know, we had to evacuate a couple of facilities. We helped evacuate Terrebonne General Medical Center in Homa, uh, and our team did a great job moving patients across our system. But certainly that was a, a challenging time, and, and once again, one where the healthcare workers and all of our teammates stepped up and did an incredible job. Now, it's hard. I feel like I'm talking about the pandemic and the storms all at the same time, but <laughs> you were experiencing it all at the same time. And so I was reading that Ostner has had to do a lot of changes to infrastructure, changes to procedures to make sure that you can have a safe haven, you know, a place for people to go to get care. Can you talk about some of the things that you've had to do that I imagine other systems have had to put in place as well? Yeah, when we when we uh, have a facility join us, um, or you know even annually, we do what we call harden our facilities. We look at any infrastructure weaknesses. Um, we look at backup generation to make sure we can run for you know essentially up to about ten days on backup power. Um, we drill wells at all of our hospitals so that we have ongoing you know water. Um, that's a real issue is when you see utilities go down. Many times the water systems go down and, and that impacts, you know, flushing of toilets and having, you know, just running water. So these are things that are critically important. Um, you know, if you drove by our Jefferson Highway campus um, during Hurricane Ida, you saw water trucks sitting out in front and we, you know, sent water trucks to the bayou area as well because we had an issue with one of, uh, one of the pumps here. So we had to have, you know, um, you know, uh, truckloads of water brought in. So this is something that we, we do every year as part of our storm prep. Um, and, and it's frankly a, a plan that we constantly improve, we constantly review and look at. And, and yeah, we're always looking at our facilities to improve and harden them and make them, you know, more uh, storm proof. And also uh, looking at our systems, our communication systems, the way we move patients around, we have a very sophisticated way that we manage patients across our system through our patient flow center, and that allows us to either evacuate facilities or move patients um, to the best place in our system. And that was certainly activated during during Hurricane Ida. How much of this was all initiated by Katrina and the aftermath? I would say a lot of it was um, uh, activated prior to Katrina. Um, so in 2004, Hurricane Ivan hit Pensacola. All right. And we were the first um, people on site in Pensacola to help the hospitals in Pensacola. Uh, Baptist Hospital there uh, received significant damage. Uh, they lost a major part of their roof. Um, they didn't have supplies. And what had happened is the bridge east of them, you know, going towards Tallahassee was out, as you recall. Um, that I-10 bridge got taken out. So we moved supplies, yeah, so we moved supplies from New Orleans, you know, east from here to get to Pensacola to help them. We learned a lot, 
during you know that just as a, what were the challenges they had how do how do we help them and so we retooled our whole hurricane uh preparation process after that hurricane ivan experience going into hurricane katrina now i will say after hurricane katrina we learned a lot more and we continued to refine our plan look at our infrastructure look at drilling wells at all of our campuses so yeah it was it was it's definitely been a learning process but Hurricane Ivan in 04 and Hurricane Katrina in 05 were really the instrumental events to help us evolve and perfect our disaster planning process. What kind of meetings and what kind of uh, preparations do you do at this time of the year as you're thinking about, you know, the summer and then the next the next uh, wave yeah. of possible storms? So, you know, we're constantly, you know, in the what I would call the off season looking uh, at at um you know our disaster planning or things that we need to uh do different um uh what did we learn from hurricane ida that we would need to change going into you know 2022 um you know we we evacuated a couple of facilities going into hurricane ida by tracking the storm and and you know i think we learned some things about proactively doing some of that work uh, i will say however um <laughs> If you go back to uh, uh, a year ago, um, January of 2021, we had to engage our disaster planning in North Louisiana because we had a massive ice storm in Shreveport where it took the water systems out in Shreveport. We had to get water trucks to our facilities in Shreveport. Um, we had you know, massive issues there um, you know, during that ice storm and you know, roads were shut down um, we couldn't even get the National Guard in to help us uh, from, you know, the state sending them. We had to get our own water trucks in there. So, look, you never know when you're going to need these uh, preparations. Um, you never know kind of how these things are going to hit you. But our communication system and, frankly, our leadership, you know, we've spent, you know, two decades now developing the Auctioner Leadership Institute uh, building the resilience and capability of our leaders, building the agility and flexibility and the, the skill of dealing with ambiguity of our leadership. And I think that's why we respond well to change. We respond well to disasters. We respond well to the pandemic. Um, you know, we set testing sites up across the state. No one else did that. Um, we set the, you know, the airline highway, you know, Shrine Airline, you know, massive testing facility and then massive vaccine facility. Um, we put the vaccine facility at the airport and at Lakeside Mall because our teams that were working on this came up with these ideas and just did them. It's not like it was driven from my office or my executive team. We have people that they're working on this every day. They think about it. They know um, what they've got to do to best take care of patients. And and, and they get it done. And that's all about leadership and all about how we prepare people every day and every month so that they can react and act and, and lead during these difficult times. Ostner is the state's biggest private employer. And like every other employer, the pandemic has brought around a whole new reality as far as um, staffing issues and what it means to um, to have a workforce ready to do the job. Can you talk a little bit about what you guys had to do to maintain staff levels during all these crises over the last two years and how that's changed the way you employ people from here on out. So I think we have, you know, we really have two, um, 
know, kind of two separate workforces that we have to think about. So one is our clinicians that need to be in our hospitals, in our clinics, in our clinical locations every day. So those are our folks that are on site, hands-on with patients, you know, taking care of folks. And so, yeah, we've had, we've had staff shortages. We've had to get travelers, nurses from all over the country, frankly, to come in and help us through the peaks of the pandemic and, and through, um, you know, frankly, even just today, we probably have about five or 600 travel nurses across our system today. So it, it, it's, a, it's a huge issue. It's, it, we have to pay a huge premium to get these folks. Um, and we continue to make investments in retention and market pay for our clinicians so that we can retain and keep them. Um, and, and over time, we believe, you know, move some of the traveling nurses kind of out of our workforce and, and have that be more of a temporary situation. So that's what happens with our, our, our clinical workforce. Our physicians, our nurse practitioners, our, you know, physician assistants, they've done a great job, you know, during this entire time, you know, they've been on site. Um, you know, taking care of patients, you know, through difficult times and, and frankly, through times with, you know, staff shortages and have done a great job. So that's really our on-site. You know, the, the other piece is our corporate staff. So our, our billers and collectors, our phone people, our human resource leaders, our uh, information technology, IT leaders, supply chain. A lot of those folks have been remote and we've engaged remote working our marketing and communications folks. Um, you know, we've engaged remote working. We are now hiring people across the country. We employ people in 40 different states across the U.S. Um, we are now, you know, really identifying more jobs as being fully remote. And we're talking about remote national, where we could, you know, basically hire people anywhere. And what we would call remote regional, which are folks that may need to come in once in a while, but but still are primarily remote. And then there's people that are hybrid that need to come in probably two or three days a week ongoing. So we really have about four categories, people on site, people hybrid here two or three days, people re remote regionally that need to come in once in a while, and then people remote nationally that don't need to come in. And we really have to think about our workforce, you know, very, very differently. Um, and and you know, I think that'll continue to evolve and change. I think what that looks like today likely a year or two years from now to look different. I can't predict exactly what that'll look like. I mean, if you read articles, some people predict that uh, even more things are gonna be remote. Some people predict that um, they'll wanna be more people that wanna come to the office because they're going to get you know um, fatigued with being fully remote. I, I don't know exactly how that'll play out, but we'll be agile, we'll adjust to it and make sure we are providing the right opportunities for our employees because we, at the end of the day, want to have the best people and provide the best environment. You talked about travel nurses. Uh, a doctor friend of mine was talking about the shortage he's having in his office. He's a eye surgeon. And so he's only doing a certain amount of surgeries per month because of just the amount of uh, staff he has available. And he said one of the situ situations is he's got a travel nurse standing next to uh, a full-time local nurse and the travel nurse uh, pay scale is different and right. it creates tensions and in fact what he felt like is happening is people are leaving Louisiana to go work say in Alabama as a travel nurse and then there's vice versa it, are people in the industry thinking about ways to to solve that riddle yeah I think that I, I think absolutely I mean that's one you know we're 
we're getting ready to, you know, announce some significant, you know, compensation changes to a lot of our clinicians. Um, you know, some of that will be in retention money. Some of that will be in, you know, market changes. Yeah, I think the way I think about uh, the travel nurses is they're temporary. They're temporary folks, you know, and we we don't want to have we don't want to make it a practice of having travel nurses here all the time. So we got to make sure we recruit and retain and build a big pipeline of folks coming into our organization. I, I guess the way I would, would look at it is that we're having these folks come in temporarily. We're having to pay a premium for them, which I don't like doing. But we're doing it so that we can serve our patients and take care of them. You know, right now at our Jefferson Highway campus, we got about 40 beds that are closed because we don't, we can't staff them. We've got, you know, multiple ORs that are closed, and we got people that are waiting for surgery. So, do we, do we make people wait and not get taken care of, or do we pay a premium to get folks here so we can take care of patients? And at the end of the day, we're here to take care of patients. Um, and, and we don't want people delayed any longer than it needs to be. So that's why we are stepping up and paying some of these temporary labor rates. But, but you know, you need to look at it and we look at it like this is temporary. This is not something we're going to do ongoing. This is a temporary situation and it does create some anxiety and some tension. Uh, but as we explain to folks, and, and frankly, we've had a lot of travel nurses after they spend, you know, three months here, whatnot, they want to come work here. Because, like, wow, I've traveled all over, and I really like it at Oxford. Like, you guys got a great culture. You treat people well. Yeah, I need to, I need to be here. And so we've, it's actually been a great recruitment tool for us as well. We've had a lot of folks that have decided to stop traveling and, and move here. So, you know, there's, there's pros and cons to it, but it, it, it does certainly create a little, bit of a little bit of conflict. But I think we need to be clear about and explain why we're doing it uh, and it's not something we want to do. It's something we have to do in order to take care of patients. Understood. I want to ask you some forward-looking questions, but one more reflecting on the last two years. Uh, you were at the vanguard of the vaccine requirements, and it went through the courts, and ultimately Supreme Court confirmed your, your uh, right to do what Ashna did. you want to just reflect on that whole process with the advantage of looking back? So, you know, we received a lot of um, accolades for standing up and doing what we did. We received a lot of criticism for what we did. And I think at the end of the day, we had a, an FDA approved vaccine that we know is proven. Um, and we're in the business of taking care of people and keeping them safe. So as far as keeping patients safe, we think having a vaccinated uh, uh, team of, of, of workers is the best way to do that. And We've done it for years with flu shots. I mean, flu shots have been required at auctioner for years. Um, this is just like another flu shot, only it's, you know, um, it, it's, it's another type of shot that is, you know, similar to a flu shot, but it's, um, it's for the COVID, you know, you know vaccine. So I, I just view that we're protecting our employees from each other. We're protecting our patients um, and having our employee base uh, um, vaccinated. And, and I would say that at the end of the day, we, we feel like we did the right thing. And sometimes the right thing is hard to do. Um, you know, if you go back in the history of Auctioner, um, Alton Auctioner was the first one to tie uh, smoking to lung cancer. He was criticized about that. He was chastised about that. But he stood up and talked about it because he knew it was the right thing. And I think we know that this is the right thing around vaccines. I mean, we know today even with the Omicron you know, variant, people are dying in our hospitals 
but they're people who are unvaccinated. You know, uh, less than 1% of the patients in our hospitals today with COVID are boosted, you know, vaccinated and, and with a booster. Um, it's just a reality of the situation. And so we encourage people, if you've gotten two vaccines, get the booster. If you're not vaccinated, get vaccinated because Omicron is still out there. People are still being uh, hospitalized with COVID and people are still dying. You know, this week we've had people die from COVID. So it, it is not something that's over. It is something that, you know, is, is practically over for those that are vaccinated and boosted. And I would just encourage folks to, um, to, to do that to protect themselves and to protect their family. Do you feel like we're looking at maybe a more normal festival season and maybe cross your fingers the next storm season, you won't be having to deal with another wave of, of the pandemic? Uh, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I mean, talking to our infectious disease physicians, um, you know, this, this uh, virus is trending the way viruses historically have. You know, um, the Omicron variant was a lot more contagious, but a lot less severe, um, and, and, and especially a lot less severe for folks that are vaccinated and, and or boosted. Um, so that's how it seems like a lot of viruses have evolved in history. So yes, I'm hopeful that um, if we do have another variant, I hope we don't, but if we do have another variant that it is less severe, um, like Omicron has been much less severe than Delta was. I mean, the Delta surge we went through in July and August was the worst one we've gone through uh, since the pandemic started. You know, the first um, uh, surge in you know March of 2020 was very difficult. We went from our first COVID patient in like around March 7th of 2020, 25, 26 days later, we had 1,080 patients in our hospital in, in that quick a time period. With that being said, there's a lot of other medical procedures that were shut down during that time. So we didn't have other medical procedures that we were providing. You know, if you go back to the Delta variant in July and August, we were trying to take care of all the other folks that had their normal procedures um, and take care of, you know, well over a thousand COVID patients in our hospitals. And we had to deploy staff, close ORs, uh, stop doing cardiac casts on people. And we canceled or we're actually delayed. We delayed nearly 10,000 procedures and surgeries because we had such a surge of COVID patients, um, primarily folks who were not vaccinated. So that created huge strain on our workforce, huge strain on our patients who we couldn't care for and we had to delay them. And, and by far Delta was the worst surge that we went through you know, since the pandemic has started. So there were some big changes that happened as a result of the pandemic. Maybe the most visible to someone like me who's not in the industry was was the rise of telemedicine. Can you talk a little bit about digital medicine? What happened over the last two years and where you think it's going within your system and in general? So I would say that, uh, so telemedicine 2019, with a lot of marketing and a lot of direct messaging to patients and <laughs> whatnot, we did about 3,000 direct to to consumer direct to patient telemedicine visits, 3,000. Right, the whole year. Yeah. Whole year. In 2020, the year of the pandemic, we did 330,000. <laughs> so, you know, nothing like a pandemic to accelerate a trend, right? 
Um, now, I would say in 2021, that dropped slightly. It's about 300,000 in 2021. So we did see a little bit of a step back. But I would say that you know telemedicine, what I would say is evolving to be what I would call virtual medicine um, is here to stay and it's gonna grow. Um, we have what we call um, chronic disease digital medicine programs for hypertension and diabetes that hypertension being high blood pressure and, and you know diabetes that we can track you from home and have you take your blood pressure um, or have you you know take your uh, you know, check your um, you know diabetes at home and we can monitor that uh, at auction or remotely and what we can do with our with our high blood pressure or hypertension modules is if you're not taking your blood pressure we'll text you to remind you and what we find is instead of what would happen historically is we'd bring you in four times a year to get your blood pressure with our digital medicine program for high blood pressure we're getting about 150 blood pressures a year versus four and what that allows us to do is 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 monitor a patient more closely adjust medicines more frequently give you feedback on diet and exercise more frequently and what we've seen is about 80 percent of the people in our digital medicine program get their high blood pressure under control whereas historically that was about 20 percent of people So that's a different type of virtual medicine, if you will, and connected to the patient at home. And telemedicine is, is another piece where, you know, whether it's an urgent care visit or, you know, uh, having a virtual visit with your dermatologist or a surgeon as a follow-up. I mean, that's another piece. So I think you're going to see these virtual options um, continue to evolve where patients are going to have an option to have a telemedicine visit, come in and see us, be on a program where we monitor you on a, on a daily basis from home. Um, that you're gonna have you know, multiple channels that are options of how you wanna interact with us and connect with us. And I think that's, that's the future of how we will take care of people very differently than, than just you know, coming to our clinics and seeing us face to face. I think we gotta do a, a better job on the proactive side of managing you know, high cost chronic disease like um, like hypertension and diabetes and, you know, folks that get into AFib. Now, if you got an Apple Watch, your Apple Watch can tell you immediately that you're an AFib. Well, then the question is, okay, then what do you do? Like, how do we manage that kind of, you know, after, you know, so I think these are these are new tools that are evolving and and how we connect those to our health system and how we connect back to you and have the ongoing interaction with you is you know, really how I see virtual medicine or, or a relationship that, that really crosses multiple continuums of care from home to your you know, being remote and, and at work to coming to our clinics to being in our hospitals. So we really need to connect with you wherever you are and build those different channels to, to meet the needs of, of, of the patient the way they want to have their needs met. Is there a lot of innovation going on right now to create new tools and systems? To yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we started Innovation Auction about six or seven years ago um, that's, you know, built these tools around, you know, digital hypertension and diabetes. They're working on some really neat new tools uh, connected to the home around predictions for falls, especially for seniors. Um, 
right. you know, we, we, we think we're getting close to be able to predict, um, you know, when a patient may fall at home before it happens so we can intervene and, wow. and basically tell somebody that they're at risk of falling and help them with various, you know, rehab or other services so they can kind of, you know, continue to improve their stability. So, you know, falls at home are, are terrible for patients and, 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 you know, frankly, uh, have pretty severe impacts on someone's health. And so if we could prevent more falls at home and, and build these tools to do those things, which are, they're coming. I mean, they're in beta right now and you're gonna see more about this, but our Innovation Oxford team has done a great job and we're continuing to build and scale these solutions for more patients. And, and these are also solutions that we'll take well outside Louisiana. They're not just gonna be for you know, the Louisiana market. They'll be more regional and national. I wanted to ask two more questions. And the first is, are there other trends or other lessons learned from the last two years that you feel like have sort of changed the way the industry is going? You know, I, th I think the workforce issues are massive. I, I really do. And I, and I think this has huge impact on the cities in Louisiana and the state of Louisiana. Uh, you know, we're the largest private employer. We can hire people anywhere now. We don't have to hire people in Louisiana. Um, alternatively, as an employer here, our, our employees that live in Louisiana can be hired anywhere else. So, you know, and not move. They can be hired in, you know, Dallas or Atlanta or Chicago or Boston or LA and not move. So this whole focus of one, employee loyalty and engaging employees and, and having them be able to have their career path and understand their future and how we provide a great work environment for them is critically important. Um, at the same time, um, I think that we as a, as a state and, and as a, a city, we've got to continue to be more and more competitive so that people want to continue to stay and live here um, and, and be you know, a, a, a great livable city and state and you know provide the right things for folks and so i think i think there's just going to be more competition um for employers that want to keep people and also for states and locales that want to keep people living there because i think people have a lot of options now um and they can they can live in a lot of different places and they can go work in a lot of different places so that, i think that whole environment is just a massive change in our economy that um, needs to be taken seriously and needs to be thought through carefully. And I, and I think our city and state leaders need to understand that, um, you know, we need, to, we need to understand it's a very different situation today. I mean, the other thing I just say just generally is that I, I really feel like the, you know, the state and certainly the city as well, we're at kind of a, um, we have a very big opportunity in front of us today. Um, State of Louisiana has about $2.8 billion of federal funding that's come into the state through the CARES funding and other, other acts, you know, related to the pandemic. And the question is, in, in, in our, at least in my lifetime, you're younger than I am, Rich, but in my lifetime, um, we probably won't have that opportunity again to have that amount of funding to make long-term investments to position this state very differently. And the question is, like, how will that be handled? How will our state leaders handle that? 
What projects and programs can they build that are sustainable for not the next one or two years, but the next decade? And put Louisiana in a very different place in 2030 than it is today in 2022, around education, around safety, around healthcare, around livability. Um, I, I think these are, these are huge opportunities that if we invest those dollars in the right way, we can really uh, enhance the competitiveness of the state. Um, so it's a very, it's a unique opportunity. I really do believe it's, it's once in our you know, you know, lifetime. And, and I'm hopeful that the state will make long-term investments that have recurring value versus kind of one-time you know, investments that, that don't have recurring value. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out in the coming year or so. Yeah, and you make a good point that we're competing with every other metropolitan area uh, or not even in the you're competing with the world at this point, and you know Boston and Austin they also got federal dollars to uh, to yeah. to improve their their situation. So, right, you know, I'm curious if if you're thinking about that budget and you're thinking about the challenges that we all know that our Greater New Orleans area has. What's the top of your check? Is is it education and infrastructure? I mean, I look, I'm not. I'm not in politics. I don't know all the the you know the details of. And look, it's. I I will first say that for all of our political leaders, I would thank them for what they do because it's it's a relatively thankless job to be in public service, and and it's there's lots of hard choices and lots of hard issues that have to be dealt with. And so I applaud those that are willing to put themselves out there and and take that take those challenges on. I, I will say, I think, you know, when you come, when you come down to looking at livability, it's, thing, you know, it's, it's public safety, it's education, it's health care, uh, and then probably infrastructure, right? So, um, but, but I will say that, you know, if you look at the health status um, and the national health rankings, and we've, we've set a stake in the ground to, you know, really try to lift Louisiana up, get from 49th and 50th to 40th in health rankings by 2030. And that's a big jump going from, because we've been 49th or 50th for two decades. Um, but some of the big components of that are certainly managing health, chronic health disease like, you know, diabetes and hypertension and whatnot. But also it's graduation rates, it's poverty levels, it's education. And so, you know, if we could get workforce programs into our high schools, that helped us start to get eighth, ninth, tenth graders involved in on kind of workforce um, uh, tracks where they're going to kind of get out of high school and kind of get into the in, into jobs. Um, that has the ability to move our grad. We need to graduate three thousand one hundred and fifty more kids a year to get to the national average. Three thousand one hundred fifty a year. Well, that's that's doable, right? I mean, you can you can get your head around that. I mean, could we get 100 programs out there that could each take care of 31 kids. We could do that. that. That's doable. So I think we've got to think in that. we got to make it real numbers, you know. Um, if we do that, we can start to lift the poverty in, in the state. We can get more people to work and try to take care of some of our workforce issues. So I think all of these things build on themselves. Okay, the public safety issues are... I mean, there are challenges out there that got to be addressed. And I know that there's a lot of folks looking at that and, and I'm hopeful they get them taken care of. You know, we, we need to hire more police officers. <clears throat> and I know there's a lot of work being done to try to take that on. So, but beyond that, I mean, education, dealing with the, the earning potential and dealing with the poverty level in the state, I think is 
where we've got to think about, you know, what, what can we do in the next decade to drive some of those things to a very different place? And um, so I think programs that are focused there, I don't want to say I don't have all the answers by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think that, you know, it struck me. I heard this stat the other day, and maybe it's not still right, but, you know, somebody told me that the, the average age of a student at Delgado is 34. Um, that was shocking to me. Um, and, and so I think what happens is folks, you know, they, they're kind of bouncing from job to job and then it's like, okay, I'm in my thirties. I got to get a career. Well, imagine if we gained those 10 years back on, you know, thousands of people and got them into jobs in healthcare or jobs in oil and gas or working in tech companies or wanting to be in public safety or, or whatever it is. Right. I mean, um, you know, if we had a career path for, kids in high school want to be police officers or firefighters and really put them on a, a training path when they're eight, nine years old. I mean, if you want to be a firefighter, we're going to put you on a path to be a firefighter or a police officer. Um, I, I think we've got to start earlier and, and we've got to, we've got to, you know, support kids and help coach them along um, and not, not leave them behind. And that, that is going to take more work. Um, and I think different programs are kind of what we've done in. I'm not being critical of the schools. Schools are doing everything they can. This is going to take all of us working together. And I do think business and industry can play a big role here. And we're ready to step up and do some of that. But it's going to take all of us doing our piece to, to put the state in a different place in the next decade. My last question for you is related to what you were just talking about. And that is, as you look at the New Orleans economy and hopefully – leaving these last two years of difficulties behind, what makes you feel worried and what makes you most optimistic? So I would say that um, what makes me most optimistic is that the people in this region are very resilient. Very resilient, very dedicated to the area, and, and are committed to do what needs to be done to, to make it better. Um, so, you know, there's nothing like commitment and loyalty. Um, that's why I get back to if we can put resources with that and build programs, and, you know, cause we can't do this as one off right. and, and we can't do this of a program of 10 or 20 or 30. We need to do programs of 500 or a thousand or 2000. I mean, we need to do this on scale. So, um, you know, I, I think what worries me is that, um, we do have this unique opportunity with a lot of funding and it won't be put to uh it won't be put into projects that build long-term sustainable change and and that i that i worry about i think this is a very unique situation and and look it's it's um i, I mean i believe just personally we need what's the 10-year plan for new orleans what's the 10-year plan for baton rouge what's the 10-year plan for for um, for the state of Louisiana and and you know at Auctioner we think in long range planning you know we're long term investors in in projects and programs and you know we bet on on uh, and think deeply about investments we make and think long term and I and I think we've got to do a little bit more planning together versus just you know fighting the fire of the day. Uh, you got to solve the fire of the day. So I'm not saying you can ignore it, but you got to solve the fire of the day. And at the same time, 
um, work on a long range plan. And I will say in 2021, going through, um, you know, three surges of a pandemic and a major hurricane, I worked with my executive team and our board to set our next five year long range planning. We've got clarity around it. We know where we're going. Um, and our board did an amazing job on it. Uh, but we did that while we were, you know, taking care of the, the issues of the day. And, and that's hard to do, but it's important to do if you're going to think about long-term sustainability and long-term change. Well, I really appreciate hearing you talk about the city's issues and these challenges and opportunities. Warner Thomas, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. I appreciate it, Rich. Uh, hopefully it's helpful. And, uh, and uh, I look forward to working with everybody to, to keep moving the city and moving the state forward. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biz Talks. If you like what you hear each week, don't forget to rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. And follow us on social media at Biz New Orleans. For more information or to contact us, please visit bizneworleans.com slash biztalks.